The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. God is good, is He not? All right, let's get into God's Word together. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 11 and verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 12, we pick up in the next verse where we left off last week. And as we've been journeying our way through uh, the gospel of Mark here, we've seen many depictions of Jesus in Mark alone, but all throughout the scriptures, right? Particularly in the second half here of Mark, we've seen these uh, depictions as we've asked this question, who is this Messiah? Jesus has been depicted as the suffering servant and the glorious king. He came as a humble baby, but he was also the long-awaited savior. He's the good teacher and the game changer, the son of man, the son of David, and the son of God. And these are all hope-filled depictions that strengthen our faith as we look to Christ. And in today's passage here, Jesus uh, is revealed uh, another image of who he is as the Messiah. He is the, the judge the arbiter of right and wrong, the one who determines what is fake and what is genuine. And our tendency, I think, is to shrink back in fear and trembling when we think of Jesus as the judge, right? Even as I say that, some of us cower a little bit. If you've ever been to court and had to stand before the judge, it is not necessarily a fun or a hope-filled experience, is it? Save some of my stories for another time. But yet, for the believer, this title of judge is another hope-filled title, I'd say, that strengthens our faith as we look to Christ. We have only need to fear if we have something to hide. We only need to fear if we know that we are guilty, but faith in Christ, true, genuine faith in Christ, is freeing. It's freeing. We need not cower before the judge in fear because there's now no condemnation. We've been set free. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so as we get into Mark 11, uh, as we said last week, that this begins the last week of Jesus' life. He's had several years of ministry. If you're unfamiliar with Mark or with uh, Jesus' life, the first 10 chapters is the first several years of Jesus' ministry as he's traveling around uh, the country of Israel and the greater regions there and doing ministry. And now he's arrived in Jerusalem, the epicenter of religion in that day. And Jesus goes straight to the center, straight to the bullseye in that he goes to the temple. As we saw last week, as he made his way into uh, shouts and praise, he went in and did some recon in the temple, and then he left, and he returns really the next two days, and he comes as the judge. And so would you look with me at your copy of God's Word? We're going to read it here together. I'll read it. You can listen in Mark 11. We'll pick it up in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. Follow along now as I read it. It says this, On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig trees withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word for God's people. It's kind of an intense passage, isn't it? Jesus comes in and he is ready to get to work. He enters the temple and what's he looking for? He's looking for faith. He's looking for the fruits of faith as he enters into this temple and he uses a tree to illustrate the spiritual condition of what is happening here. If we wanted just an alternate title, we could maybe call this message of trees and temples, right? but it is communicating really the same truth here. But for us today, this account teaches us this main point here. If you're taking notes, it's this, what Jesus looks for in a church. What Jesus looks for in a church, and when I say church, I mean more than the building, more than uh, this building here, 2A at 311 FM 306. I mean the biblical concept of the people, the called out ones, those who are here who have covenanted together in membership, who are living out the biblical one another's, who are committed to glorifying God through the fulfillment of the great commission. And isn't it God's providence to us to, it's, it's, his providence is perfect to put this passage before us here as we seek to live out, as we uh, seek to honor God with this building and on this morning of our grand opening. So what does Jesus look for in a church? What is he looking for as he comes to this temple? As he looks upon us, what is he looking for? Well, the first point is this. He's looking for a fruitful faith. A fruitful faith. So as I mentioned earlier here, Jesus, he had entered the temple the night before. He looked around and then he left the city and went out to Bethany. And so in our passage here in verse 12, uh, they're walking the next morning from Bethany back into Jerusalem and they see this fig tree. 
Now, fig trees are common. They're all over the place there. And, and he sees, Jesus sees in the tree what he saw in the temple the night before. Lots of leaves, lots of outward accessories, a beautiful tree, an ornate building, but the purpose of their existence was missing. As Jesus is entering into Jerusalem at this time, it's the season of the Passover. The Passover was in the springtime, and so the fig tree, as we think about the, the, the time of the season here in the spring, the fig tree, the reason it's not in season is because it would be another five or six weeks or so where those fruits would be ripe. But even at this season, where the fruit would be green, they were still edible. And often travelers would do just that. As they were passing by, they would approach a tree, even in this season, they would find these green, unripe fruits and they would snack on them. And they, as Jesus approaches this tree, it is empty. The fruits were missing. And so what does Jesus do? He curses the tree. And the question arises like, why? Is he hangry? You know, is this just like, have we finally caught Jesus after 10 chapters of perfection, of responding to every situation perfectly in complete holiness? Now do we have a situation, like have we caught Jesus sinning? Have we caught him like being petulant? Have we caught him just being angry here? Should we take a vote? Who thinks, no, we probably shouldn't do that. No, he's not just hangry here. He's not, you know, grumpy because he's hungry and has nothing to eat. He is uh, showing us a very vivid lesson about what he is to do as he enters the temple. All throughout your Bibles, particularly in your Old Testament, Israel is likened to a fig tree. Prophets use it. uh, Old Testament writers would use these illustrations of Israel as a fig tree. And Jesus finds Israel, particularly its religion, as he finds this fig tree fruitless. It's fruitless. It's fruitless. They have the appearances of faith, just as the tree had the appearances of a green, healthy, vibrant tree, but without the fruit. You should also know at this time, as it's Passover, is that Jerusalem is swollen with people. Literally tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people uh, have converged upon this city to enter the temple and to make their sacrifices. It's much like New Braunfels gets the week of Worst Fest, but much worse, right? As all these people have come, there's no hotels, there's no Airbnbs in Jerusalem to house all the people, so they're just staying wherever, wherever they can. There's no restaurants to feed everybody. They're either packing it in or, or depending upon others. There's no traffic cops to kind of uh, you know, keep everybody orderly. And so the city, as well as the temple, is bustling with activity. And we should think this is a good thing, right? Jesus is coming. He's uh, coming into the city with his disciples as many are coming, and he makes his way now to the temple. The temple is, is people everywhere, This is a good thing, right? Not so much, not this kind of activity. As Jesus enters the temple, look at verse 15. He comes into Jerusalem. He enters the temple and he begins to drive people out. Begins to overturn things. He begins to keep people out. See, where he comes now in the, in the temple, if you're familiar, there's a lot of background here to help us understand. He is in what's known as the court of the Gentiles. And so you have the temple complex, and uh, by some estimates, this court of the Gentiles is massive. It's much bigger. It's not like our like, foyer area out there. In some estimates, it's 15 acres. Others, as I was reading this week, one commentator said it's as big as 35 acres. 
was this outer ring in the temple. You know, the middle is the Holy of Holies or the most holy place where only the high priest could go. But this court of the Gentiles was out here what was a place for any traveler. You didn't have to be Jewish. A Gentile person is somebody who's just simply not a Jew. And they would come to worship. They would come into this place. And what did he find there? Jesus finds those that are extorting one another. The money changers, what, who are these? They're gouging people for the temple tax. These people would come to the temple. They'd pay their temple tax, but they, were, they, wouldn't, they only would take their, the, the Israeli currency of that day. And so all the foreign currencies, as they would come and change the money, they were extorting people, gouging with these exchange rates. Anybody ever traveled and went to one of those like quick exchange rate things? You feel like you leave with half your, you know, only half your money, right? Here, what else does Jesus find? He finds merchants taking advantage of the poor. Those that, look, he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Well, what is he referring to here? The pigeon was the, was the sacrificial animal of the poor, the poorest of the poor. Now they're being taken advantage of as they come to worship the Lord. He finds the court of Gentiles a thoroughfare. It says in verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So not only is he kicking people out, not only is he throwing tables over, but now he is also stopping people who are just using it as a shortcut through the city. And so where the temple was located as people were needing to get like from one side or the other, instead of going around it, they're just, hey, well, just take the shortcut straight through it. Jesus is saying, no, no. The temple existed for the glory of God to bear fruit. The temple existed so people would come to meet with God and grow in their faith to be taught, not swindled, to be exhorted in the faith, not extorted for their resources. They were to come purposefully to meet with God, not just as a way to just because they're passing through. A place of worship had been turned into a marketplace as an enterprise so the chief priests and scribes and the elders could get rich. In the same way that the purpose of the tree was missing, so too the purpose of the existence of the temple was missing. And so Jesus does just the same that he did with the tree. He condemns it by driving them out of overturning things. And these are vivid lessons for us. As Jesus looks at our faith, does he find fruit? Or does he find a fake faith? Does he find make-believe? looking the part on the outside, doing the right things, and yet the inside is indeed not changed at all. The output of our life is not demonstrating what the gospel does. See, the gospel changes us, does it not? As we come to Christ, as Christ saves us, as he takes us who do not deserve it, we who are full of sin, and he applies the work of Christ to our behalf, as we respond to the good news of Jesus in repentance and faith, then we begin to live a different life, bearing a fruit that is conducive, that is representative of the gospel, of a changed life, a life that mimics Christ. See, authentic faith produces certain fruit. And the rest of the passage then is Jesus showing us the kind of fruit that he's looking for in us, in a church, in the temple there because it's a fruit that he causes to grow. So what does Jesus look for in a church? He looks for a fruitful faith. And it's a fruitful faith that is demonstrated. It's the fruit of dependent prayer. 
So Jesus, join me back here in verse 17 in in your Bible here. He's looking for this. He doesn't see it. He uses the tree as an illustration. He comes to the temple and he finds uh, anything but this. He doesn't find any fruit and he then teaches. He's looking for this dependent prayer. And I love here, after cleaning house in verse 17, it says that he teaches them. You know, the correction would be incomplete without the instruction. Jesus is so good about this. He corrects, but then he also instructs and he takes them right to the word. He teaches them and he was saying to them, is it not written? He takes them to Isaiah 56, 7 to re-instruct them why this building even existed in the first place. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This house of prayer, what is the purpose of the church where people would come to meet with God? where people are praying with and for one another in every area of the building. Not a marketplace, but a place where they would come to pray. Well, why? Does this mean that the only thing that we do is prayer? Well, prayer is indicative of our relationship. We talk to the Lord. We come to meet with God, and this was a place for all the nations. See, all are welcome in the house of God. No matter where you're from, no matter what background you come from, no matter what your socioeconomical status is, no matter what skin color, age, race, all of those things. See, the draw to this place, the draw to God's house, should be God's presence ultimately. What motivates us to get up on a Sunday morning and come to gather with God's people is the fact that I get to meet with God, with people that I love. In a, in a building that's, that's nice and padded chairs and all those things, but those are just accessories. But see, the draw ultimately is that I get to meet with God. It's not an attractive design or not even the friends that are there too. We don't just throw those things out as unnecessary or we don't throw them out as just like, you know, they don't matter one bit. But the ultimate draw to the house of the Lord is that we get to meet with the Lord. And so Jesus reminds them, he teaches them, and he also takes them to Jeremiah 7, 11 in his rebuke. He says, it's, uh, you've turned it into a den of robbers. Jeremiah was rebuking the Israelites of his day for much the same heart, that they had turned away from the Lord and they were turning other people away from the house of the Lord. They called it a den of robbers and Jesus uses this to rebuke them now. And look at in verse 15, the chief priests, the scribes, they love this, don't they? Like, this is great. Who let this guy in here? This is fantastic. We're, we haven't had this kind of teaching in a long time, right? Sorry, that was some dry sarcasm uh, for you. No, they're seething. They hate the judge. They fear him because the people love him, and they know that they have been outed, that they are guilty of these things. They've been exposed, And so now they fear him and they're trying to determine how they can destroy him. They don't love that he's here. They're trying to think of a plan of how they can eradicate this threat. And so that's what happens. And then Mark just tells us, evening comes, they leave the city. And in verse 20, the teaching continues. See, the lesson hasn't stopped. What Jesus is looking for is the fruit of dependent prayer, that fruit that shows up in the corporate aspect and in the personal aspect of our prayers. Jesus is showing us what this church, what the gathered body of believers is to be marked as, as a people that come to meet with God who are uh, unceasing in their prayers. 
But in verse 20, the lesson continues because they go to bed and so Jesus' lessons aren't just like 15 minute like TED Talks, they just happen to last for a couple days. And now they are coming back into the city in verse 20, they pass by that same fig tree and Peter, he remembers it. Hey, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you've cursed has withered. And Jesus teaches them again on faith, the faith that bears the fruit of dependent prayer. See, this personal element here, Jesus begins to teach him. He says, have faith in God. It's not a quantified faith here. It's not that you have enough faith. You either believe God or you don't. It's impossible to uh, be anywhere in between. You either believe him or you don't. Authentic faith believes and trusts and desires God's will above its own. We don't. And so don't make the don't make the mistake of misinterpreting verses 23 and 24 here. There's a lot of error. There's a lot of misconstruing here of when we just take this. What is Jesus talking about when he's saying, take this mountain and you can be taken up, thrown into the sea, but don't doubt. Believes what he says and then whatever we ask, just believe it and it'll be yours. What is, don't, don't make the error here. Don't misinterpret this. This isn't the power of positive thinking. That if you just, you know, say it enough, if you just believe it enough, if you just repeat it enough times, then it will come true. I want a million dollars. I want a million dollars. I believe that God's going to give me a million dollars. God, would you give me a million dollars? I guess I don't have enough faith. No, no. See, the power at play here that Jesus is turning to him is from God, not from our faith. Not from our prayers. It's from God. They are dependent upon the Lord. And so we believe that God can do the impossible. See, our faith believes that Christ is possible, uh, can do anything. There's no hopeless situation in our life, we've said many times here. And so we bring it to God in prayer, trusting his will, trusting his ways among us. And it is my prayer that as Jesus looks at redemption, that he may ever find us a people of unceasing, dependent, and believing prayer. That is, we, uh, that we are a people ever ready to drop whatever we're doing and say, let's pray. And we would be a people that don't just say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you, but say, let's pray right now. And we would be a people who meet challenges, the challenges of our life with the power of prayer. That we would be a people who pray more than we complain or gossip or cut down. That we would be a people committed to living out our faith in dependent prayer. And so may the fresh fruit of prayer grown out of the healthy roots of faith always define us as Redemption Bible Church. And I pray that the faith that Christ is looking for, here's this second one, the fruit of generous forgiveness. The fruit of generous forgiveness. See, praying is our connection with God. It's our, the communication aspect in our relationship. And so when Jesus adds forgiveness here in this verse 25, it's not just, he's like, not just teaching, and it's not one of those moments like, oh yeah, and, and don't forget about this forgiveness thing as well. You know, sometimes when you're giving your kids instructions, all that, and you're going through like the list, and you're like, oh yeah, and don't forget to put your laundry away, right? Unconnected to anything else, but you just remembered it, and so, no, that's not what he's doing. Prayer and forgiveness are intimately linked. Forgiven people are free, but when we withhold forgiveness, when we hold on to bitterness and our offenses, it becomes a blockade in our relationship with God. It becomes a blockade in our communication. And so Jesus is saying that the fruit of faith, 
A fruitful faith is marked by the fruit of generous forgiveness. Our prayers are free. Our prayers are heard by the Lord because we stand both clear accounts with him and also with one another. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. That's no caveats. That's not if they ask for it. That's not if you like them. That's not if they're, there's not just anything against anyone. Forgive them so you will be forgiven as well. See, to forgive someone is to say, I release you from the debt that your offense has caused me. Fully and freely. We've heard this before. This is familiar to us if you've been around here. The Peacemaker is a great book on forgiveness. And they show us these four promises of biblical forgiveness. When you say the words, I forgive you, you're making these commitments. You're saying, I won't dwell on it anymore. Yes, you've hurt me. Yes, you've done this. Yes, this has been a grievous offense, but I won't dwell on it. And I second, I won't bring it up to you and I won't use it against you anymore. And I won't bring it up. Here's the third thing. I won't bring it up with others. I won't say, yeah, I forgive you and then go to my friends or my parents or the kids. I'm not going to bring it up with anyone else. And the fourth thing is, is that I'm not going to let this stand between us and hinder our relationship. These are the things that we say. These are the commitments that we make when we say those words, I forgive you. And how can anyone do this? Some of you are looking at me like, yeah, that's, that's great, Blair. That's great, right? How can anyone do this? Especially when we've been extremely hurt, even victimized. How do we do this? Only through Christ. <laughs> Only through Christ. When we've experienced the generous forgiveness of our sin against God, knowing that that is much more grievous than anything that anyone has ever done to us. We've offended holy God. And that he, just because he's rich in mercy, because he loved us, he forgave us. Not because we came groveling, not because we made some repayment of our own, not because we came and, and tried to, you know, to overcome the things that we did to do three more nice things compared to the bad thing that we did to him. No. He forgave us fully and freely that we might live forever with him. And so the scriptures teach that forgiven people forgive people. To adamantly refuse forgiveness shows the bad fruit of unbelief. When everything around us, though the world around us says, no, hold on to that grudge, don't let it go. Not until they say they're sorry, not till they make amends, not till they make these changes, not till they get counseling. No, we demand repayment. There's nothing that you or anyone can do that will allow me to let this go. And Jesus says something better to the world's mantra. He says, forgive. Forgive and be free. Forgive and experience a close relationship with the Lord. Sure, there, God will take care of it. As Jesus looks at redemption, I pray that he will ever find us a people of generous, limitless forgiveness. For this will make us stand out from any other entity in this world. That we are a people ever ready to let go of offenses. That the, that the words, I forgive you fully and freely, just f- roll off our lips like rehearsed lines. Where we are quick to forgive, where we are quick to keep clear accounts with one another because God has cleared all 
our account. May the fresh fruit of forgiveness grown out of the healthy roots of faith always define us as a church. There's a final fruit that Jesus is looking for. As Jesus comes to the church, he's looking for a fruitful faith, the fruitful faith of here, humble teachability. Humble teachability. As he teaches this on forgiveness, they had left the city and were coming back in, and Jesus was teaching all these lessons on their walk back into Jerusalem. We've seen a lot of these, right? These walk and talk lessons that Jesus has. Wouldn't you like to just be wandering around the wilderness, walking from city to city with Jesus as he's teaching these things, these profound lessons on prayer and forgiveness? And so now they come back into Jerusalem and they arrive at the temple once again. See this in verse 27? And this time, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they're ready for him, aren't they? They wouldn't be caught uh, on their heels again and let Jesus come in and, and uh, turn some tables over and wreck the whole, their whole enterprise. No, they're ready for him and they challenge his authority. As I was reading it, did you hear how many times that word came up? Authority, authority, authority. What do you think these verses are about? Authority. authority. That's right. That's like, a, that's like Bible study 101. As you're reading the scriptures and you're wondering what a passage is about, look for the repeated words underline them and so there's authority and I guess verses 27 through 33 are about authority and so they're challenging it the chief priests the scribes the elders they come in they're like who does this guy think he is doesn't he know who we are we're the chief priest they're like we we run this place who's this guy and so they ask him they're like but who's the source of your authority who gave this to you and you know as we stand back we can't fault them too much these are good questions to ask we ask these kind of things all the time don't we like we, just, we go to the doctor, right? We want to know that they are actually licensed to practice medicine. That somebody, another doctor who is skilled in, in medicine, you know, gave them their credentials. We ask this of teachers. Not just anybody shows up at a school and should teach. We ask this rightly of pastors. Where did you come from? Who, what school did you go to? What other church? Who are you accountable to? But the problem with the Religious leaders asking this question is that they weren't willing to consider the answer nor examine the evidence that Jesus gave. And Jesus knows this. They demonstrate it by their answer to, back to Jesus when he asks them a question about John the Baptist. He's like uh, befuddling them, right? They ask the question, Jesus asks a question, you're like, wait, but I asked you a question. How can you ask me a question? And Jesus is just the master debater here of that day. They weren't willing to believe it. He points them to John the Baptist and and really kind of traps them in their answer because they weren't willing to acknowledge that John the Baptist himself came from God, that he was authorized by God, for that would discredit them. Then they would have to admit that they were wrong in beheading him and not not accepting and embracing the ministry of John the Baptist. See, their whole charade was built on the premise that they represented God. And now Jesus comes in and he's threatening this. And they fear the opinion of the people because they have them all hoodwinked. They fear man more than they fear God. They would be outed now in either answer. Jesus stumps them. And so they weasel out of the answer, well, we don't know but they're still exposed in their make-believe through the bad fruit of insubordination they clung to their authority they were unteachable and they wouldn't let this you know bumpkin from nazareth come in and disrupt all the things that they were doing you know we're not all that unlike these pharisees 
these chief priests and scribes and elders, we live in a time where we cling to our independence, where our personal authority is like a prized possession that we will not let go of. We question anyone in authority. We buck against it no matter what. And yet the fruit of faith is humility. Jesus himself humbled himself as he left heaven's throne and he came and put on human flesh and lived among us. As he lived the meek life. See, faith makes us teachable. Humility makes us teachable. We realize we have not yet arrived. That we have much to learn. That we have room to grow. And so we're not threatened by authority. Because we understand that God has given it to us for our good. For our protection. For our instruction. And so in confronting the religious authorities, Jesus is not just opening up the door for, you know, just uh, autonomous independence and anarchy, but he's showing us the way of true authority, authority that comes and is that is marked by humble, teachable service. See, authority isn't bad, right? Bad authority is bad. But no matter if we have a place of authority or not, what Jesus is looking for in a church is humble teachability. And I pray that as Jesus looks at redemption, he may ever find us a people of relentless, eager, humble learning. Ever ready to admit, you know, we don't have it all figured out, but quick to turn to our studies of the scriptures, quick to obey its application, quick to uh, form our biblical convictions based on the truth and that we would be joyful in following those that God has put over us to protect us and instruct us. Those that walk with us, those that model this humble teachability. I pray that the fresh fruit of teachability grown out of the healthy roots of faith in Christ would always define us as a church, that we would be a people marked by our humble teachability, always growing, ever learning as we pursue Christ. See, church, the temptation to settle is real, to feel like we've made it. And it's even greater now that I think that we have a building the temptation to, to, to settle, to think, oh, we're, we're here, we've made it. God is pleased with us, which he is. But the temptation to settle is dangerous, and frankly, it makes Jesus mad. We can't bury our talent. We can't forget the purpose of its existence. Why does this building exist? Why, does, why do we exist? We exist to continually worship Christ, to continue to grow and to bear fruit. And we should let this building be a catalyst, a catalyst to continue to see the lost saved, the saved matured and the mature multiplied all to whose glory? God's glory. Otherwise, this building is useless and a massive waste of our time, talent, and treasures. My prayer for us is redemption. My, uh, our conviction as the elders and the staff and the small group leaders who lead you is that for however long this building is a tool in our toolbox, when Jesus, the judge, looks at us, he would find us a people of authentic faith, a people who are on their knees in prayer, whose arms are open wide in generous forgiveness, whose eyes are bright with obedience because of what Jesus himself has done for us. That's my prayer. That's what I, Jesus looks for when he looks to us. And so may we forever be a place, may we forever be a people, a church, where Christ is exalted in and among us. And as we turn our attention to him, the faith, our faith is growing as our eyes are fixed on Christ.
Would you pray with me to that end on your own and right now? God in heaven, uh, these are some, uh, some great words, some hope-filled words as we trust you. These are some words that uh, we see your handiwork in, God. We don't wanna be like the, the, the scribes. We don't wanna be a people who are about our own business. We don't wanna be a people who are extorting others and, uh, and, and who are using and abusing the people and the places and the resources around us, God. We want to bear fruit, fruit that remains. And so even today, God, as we celebrate your goodness to us, would you find us faithful people? Would you find us fruitful people? Not because of our, how great we are, not because of what, uh, uh, how beautiful we are, but just simply because we are firmly planted in you. Because we're abiding in you, Jesus. We're abiding in your word. We're abiding in your love today. So would you be praised and glorified and honored among us, Lord? Even this week, God. Would you, as we head into a new uh, year, into 2020, as we uh, celebrate this building and ministry continues here, God, would you quicken us to prayer? Would you open us to forgiveness? Would you make us teachable today? these marks that uh, are born from you. So help us, God, by your spirit now, we pray in Christ's name, amen.